from our listeners and from Waterfront Concerts, presenting David Byrne and Tune Yards at Merrill Auditorium in Portland on Tuesday, September 11th, 358-9327, waterfrontconcerts.com. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. It's 10 o'clock on the dot, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host, Natalie Springle, is up next. Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today's show is a special treat for me because I get to interview an expert interviewer. Galen Koch is a seasoned audio producer and the founder of The First Coast, a project dedicated to capturing Maine's coastal stories. Galen, welcome to the program. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Natalie. Good to be here. Great. Um, So first, a little background. When Galen and I met last year, we found we shared a passion about stories, and not just any old stories, but stories about Maine's coastal communities. We decided to take a stab at working together, so we teamed up with College of the Atlantic students and created the Voices of the Maine Fishermen's Forum project. Today, we're excited to share a few clips of the interviews we captured at the recent 2018 Maine Fishermen's Forum held in Rockport a couple weeks ago. We recorded 34, 35 people in all, uh, way more than we can share with you today. So we're already making plans for airing more of these interviews on Coastal Conversations in the future. Um, But we're going to start today because individually, our interviewees include lobstermen, herring fishermen, eel harvesters, fisheries managers, lawmakers, boat builders, apprentices, and many more. And together, these folks really create the fabric of the Maine coast. Um, So with that background, let's get right to it and start with talking with Galen. So Galen Koch of the First Coast, tell us about what you do. What I do? um, Well, right now, I'm taking the same airstream we had at the Maine Fishermen's Forum to Stonington, Maine. So I produce stories about um, kind of year-round life in coastal towns in Maine. Um, And that project that I'm working on uh, is really focused on specific towns for the next year. So I will be in Stonington for four weeks. I'll be in Lubeck for four weeks this spring. And then in the fall, I will be going to Friendship, Shibig Island, and um, Jonesport and Beals. Great, great. And you mentioned an Airstream. Tell us a little bit about the Airstream. Yeah, so um, I originally planned to be doing most of the recording in the Airstream. The Airstream was in my parents' yard and uh, 
I don't know how long it was there, maybe five to seven years. Um, and it was kind of rotting into the ground. So I got some uh, grant funding to refurbish this Airstream and have it, you know, the original plan was it was just the means by which I could record in these towns and have kind of a isolated space for that. And then it would be an exhibit space later. Um, what ended up happening is refurbishing an Airstream is an incredible endeavor. So after a lot of investment and time, I was like, well, I'm also going going to make this a space that I can stay in, that I can have as um, kind of a home base in these towns, which actually has been really great because, as you know, at the, at the forum, um, we were in there and it's it's really like a great space to feel kind of – I think people feel welcome and at home there more so than if it was just like an empty box that had a couple of microphones in it. Um, it's also 30 feet long, so <laughs> it would be a huge studio if it were just that. So, um, yeah, it's taken some – it's been about a year that I've been working on it, and now I'm finally on the road with it. So it's it's exciting. But I don't know if you know this. We had a hiccup on the way from Rockland to Stonington. We broke a window. No. Yeah. <laughs> After all that. <laughs> wow. Wow. I know. So you're on the road uh, capturing stories of the main coast. Um, how did you get into producing stories, recording and producing stories? Um, I went to the Salt Institute, actually, in 2014. Um, so I studied. I went to Skidmore College uh, about four years before I had graduated from Skidmore, um, or two years before. And I had studied kind of narrative journalism there and narrative art making and I didn't know what I was doing with it um, and then got the salt bug in my head and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go to salt. I'm going to move back. I was living out west. Can you describe back. what salt is? Oh, yeah. Salt is a um, – well, it's now part of the main college of art, part of Mecca. At the time, it was an independent institution um, that taught a five-week – 15-week intensive, excuse me, on radio, photo, writing, and video. Um, so you have a track. So I was a radio track, and everybody has to do video. Um, so, yeah, there were about 20 students, and you basically get there, and the teachers are like, okay, go out in Maine and find stories and report them, um, and you learn all about how to do interviews and cut audio and, you know, make a good story. Um, and it's really based in kind of this um, narrative storytelling that is personal and driven by um, – you know, there's always like real emphasis on an arc and a real story, like finding kind of this, the meatiness of something that could otherwise be, I don't know, mundane or, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I really loved that. I mean, there was a, um, I, I loved being forced to think about like how to make a story really good. And I, it's funny cause I've almost taken, I've almost like pivoted from that in a way because now I just I'm doing this project where I really just want interviews from everyone um, regardless of you know what arc you have or how much you've learned a lesson in your life or something like that I think a lot of our own personal stories ha don't really have that kind of narrative arc so um, I'm interested in collecting stories that are just you know interviews with folks that's just the way we've lived that's not necessarily so driven by, um, 
yeah, that arc. And so um, where did you grow up? I grew up in Stonington, Maine. Um, Deer Isle and Stonington, Maine. <laughs> yeah. So you grew up in the midst of the stories that you are now capturing. I did. Yeah. Yep. And I'm in Stonington first. And it's, it is really interesting because there's obviously there's a lot of people in my hometown that I've never spoken to. I mean, that's the way, you know, that's kind of how it is in some of these towns. You have like parts of the community that you are really, really connected to and other parts that you know that person, but you've never really had a conversation with them. So um, that's a really, really cool part of it. And I've already had some conversations with people I've always known about that I've never really talked to. Um, and then also just kind of uncovering some of the stories I knew about my whole life but and and people that I've known my entire life and had so many conversations with, but I've never sat down and said like, hey, how'd you get here? <laughs> and like, oh, what was your story? So yeah, it's been really um, enlightening and also way different than I think it will be to go to Lubeck or one of those towns. I think being in your own hometown doing this is a, a different sort of challenge. Yeah, you know? yeah. And which brings us to the Maine Fisherman's Forum because that's another way, another location where people have are gathered, where they have a lot of stories to tell. Um, and for folks who aren't familiar with the Maine Fisherman's Forum, it's an annual event. I think there's been maybe 43 of them or 44. I'm forgetting now. Um, Maine Fisherman's Forum, it's uh, always held at the Samoset in Rockport. Um, and it's a gathering that pulls together um, fishermen from all walks of life throughout Maine and New England and also folks from the Canadian Maritimes come down um, and also uh, folks who are engaged in the fishing industry in all kinds of ways, not just the fishermen themselves. And there's a humongous trade show and it's basically an annual uh, event, a reunion for a lot of people and also um, a place where there are a number of seminars where people can understand a little bit more deeply about issues related to fisheries management and other sort of important things that are going on at the forum. So Galen, describe a little bit what we did at the Maine Fisherman's Forum with the voices of the Maine Fisherman's Forum project. Um, so we had the Airstream parked outside the Samoset and we had um, College of the Atlantic students there. Natalie was there and myself and another audio producer, Matt Frassica. And um, we had the Airstream was set up as a recording studio so we could have folks come in from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all day long um, for essentially 30-minute time slots. We were interviewing folks and asking them a series of questions that we had come up with beforehand. Um, and, of course, that was our that was the plan, and then it deviated, <laughs> as, as they, they always do. do. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, we had, of course, you end up asking questions that, are based on who the people are. And then we also, um, it was a real lesson in recruitment. I mean, we were really learning like how to go out and, and get people to come in and talk to us. And I think we did an amazing job getting 35 and I can only hope that if we do it again, we get even more cause it was, yeah, it was really great. Yeah. The um, stories are really f- cross section of um, the fishing community on the coast of Maine. Um, And uh, we're going to share some of those clips with you today. Um, We're going to share three sets of clips. First, we're going to hear from a couple fishermen. 
Then we're going to hear from a couple of our elected officials, um, Senator King and Congresswoman Pingree, who attended the forum. And then we're going to hear from some high school students who are involved in the fishing industry. Um, And we'll come back in to chat in between some of these clips. So our first clip um, is going to be two fishermen. One is Bob Williams. He's from Stonington. We figured we'd start with Stonington since that's Galen's hometown. So she interviewed Bob and his wife, Diane Berlew. Um, And interestingly, they met at the Fisherman's Forum in 1991 or 81 on a blind date, which is a fun story, but we don't have that story here. They didn't share it. They just said they met. Um, and then we'll hear another clip um, from Dan Harriman, who is a lobsterman from down in Cape Elizabeth, um, who operates the last mackerel pound in Maine on the same site that his ancestors fished in the late 1800s. Um, and so in both of these clips, we'll hear these guys tell their story a little bit and also their connection to the ocean and some of their concerns about the future of the fishery. So here we go with Bob Williams, followed by Dan Harriman. What, what role does the ocean play in your life? Well, because that- I've been around the ocean all my life from the days in high school. Clamming was the big thing for kids to do. Or, and I, I actually went clamming during the part of the year when I was fishing for probably 10 years. And then, of course, in the winter, a lot of fishermen didn't go winters in the early days, so they would cut wood or, you know, get jobs on the land then. So I guess the biggest thing changed now is the value of property. I'm lucky I got shore property inherited through my great-grandmother. So we're lucky to keep that right now. Has, he been, has it been hard to keep it? Are the well, it takes the taxes, yes. The yeah. valuation of shore property has gone sky high. So, yeah, you have to generate a lot of money to keep it good going. So that's one of my goals in life, to make sure it keeps going. Have you seen people get pushed out of places that they've been well, in a long time? Well, forced out by too much, the tax is too much, or, you know, valuation of property and... I guess the biggest change in the lobster industry has been the price of lobsters and the price of going, you know, from the bait prices of when I first started, uh, herring was 75 cents a bushel and redfish was a dollar and a half. <laughs> now herring was last year was $56 a bushel and redfish, I don't know, redfish was approaching $75, $80 a bushel. So that's a big change right there. It's That was Bob Williams from Stonington, interviewed at the 2018 Maine Fisherman's Forum. This next clip, seven and a half minutes, will be Dan Harriman, a lobsterman from Cape Elizabeth who operates the last mackerel pound in Maine on the same site that his ancestors fished in the late 1800s. It's tough being a small scale. It doesn't matter if you're sustainable. The government and and all these agencies are working on how we're going to fix the way we fish. Well, the problem is, is the way we fish doesn't work. That's why the fishery collapsed. That's why we're in the mess we are now. I really believe that true and enduring change is going to come from the bottom up. 
the crap they were talking about in that meeting, going out with one boat, catching a small amount of fish and selling it for a premium so it becomes economically viable. We're not going to fix the draggers. If they would just open up the damn fishery to hook fishermen, sustainable fisheries, the dinosaurs, those big 100-foot steel, they're going to be dinosaurs. They're going to be gone because when diesel fuel hits $5 a gallon, it's not going to be economically viable. They're going to face the same challenges I face. Can I do this? If I can burn 10 gallons worth of fuel to go over and dry up a pound net with five guys representing three or four families and catch 5,000 pounds of fish, how are they going to compete with me? Burning 3,000 gallons of fuel to go to the Grand Banks or Georgia's or offshore and the maintenance and the insurance and... Help is a huge issue in this business that um, there isn't many people willing to go to that fishery. They're making real good money, but who's willing to go spend seven days, you know? So they have drug and alcohol problems and other related issues that that I believe, I, I really think that if we opened up the fishery to sustainable means that the large-scale operations are going to meet with their own demise. It's just not going to be economically viable to have a $10 million boat burning huge amounts of fuel and trying to get help for people that are, you know, who's going to be willing to go for next to nothing because fuel ate up most of the profit of the trip and the company wants the other part and... It's just, I, I think they'll be their own demise. I really do. But if we're going to have a reliable, sustainable source like these guys were talking to the restaurants and stuff, you got to have fish. If you don't have fish to sell, then you're not going to be in business. The guy from Reds, if I don't have fish, sometimes I have to, I got to, or the guy that runs offshore, Tim. If I don't have fish for the markets, they're not going to stay with me for very long. No matter how, what a story I have and what resource I have and how sustainable I am, they're not going to come back. So I just think maybe that's hope. Just hope that it will shake itself out, that there is enough people that just want to go down to the sea and fish. You know, but... Who's going to teach the next generation? Who's going to if if we don't know how it was done in the past? How are we going to learn our way in the future? And that is being lost at a breakneck speed. The basic knowledge of how to go catch things in a sustainable manner. I went to school with a bunch of guys, and I thought I was Joe Fisherman because I knew how to go fishing. It was my heritage. These guys went down and ended up in the wheelhouse of these 100-foot steel boats. You know why? Because they knew how to turn the damn electronics on. And somebody showed them plots on a piece of paper where the fish are. Go there and tow around and you're going to make money. And they did. I was stubborn and stayed in my little boat. I'm kicking myself now. I'm 60 years old. I want to go into the wheelhouse of one of those draggers and just retire. But... I've really come to the conclusion that isn't really where I want to be. I don't agree with it, even though it's my family. My people came from Denmark in 1890. 
to run steam-powered beam trawlers. That's why they came here. There was, there was real money in fishing. There was real opportunity here. Opportunity enough to leave your heritage and your family of 13 and pick up and say, you know, let's go give it a shot. I think we can do well. So It's funny how things play themselves out, you know, how it's kind of come full circle from steam-powered beam trolls to destroying the fishery back around to the eldest of the two brothers that came that started doing fish traps. I'm still fishing off the same beach, the same site that he set up. That he found the fish. This is he fished seven traps. I fished one near kills me, and this was the hot spot. That's what I inherited is just the knowledge I I gained that that this was the best out of all the sites because pound netting is a site specific fixed gear fishery, and I'm so fixed it isn't like gill nets, and I can set them here and they're going to be fixed. No, I set on the side of Richmond Island, on the north end of Saco Bay. If the fish come to me, I make some money. If the fish don't come, sometimes I lose money because i got to keep the crew in fuel at least because they ain't going to be back tomorrow if they ain't got any gas in the car. It's just how it is. got to have groceries enough to keep the old lady shut up long enough to go out and try to haul the damn thing again. <laughs> Why we would do this again, it's pitiful. It's it's desperate sometimes. I've been weeks without fish. And I talked to old Tommy Coffin. He's a stop saner from Hopswell. And I said something about, God, we're starving. I need a piece of twine to patch up my net. We're starving. He says, kid, you don't know starving. I went almost two years without a set. It got to be the point where the local store shut me down on credit. I couldn't get a can of beans anymore. And the local store was owned by my cousin. <laughs> that was it. I was shut off. And we had a set and we pumped for four days, carrier after carrier after carrier. And I went up and put down the down payment in cash for my new truck. Paid off my bills, cleared up with a bank. And he grinned at me, 80-year-old Tommy Coffin. He had a gold tooth in the front with a little diamond set in the middle of it. I freaked me out. <laughs> I just didn't know what to think. His old guy smiles. He had been broke a smile all the time. He smiles at me, and he's got a gold tooth, a little diamond set in it. That's the kind of thing we're losing. I wish you could have been interviewed him because he was a piece of work. Boy, I would have loved to interview Tommy Coffin with the gold tooth with the diamond inlaid. Amazing, huh? Uh, yes. So, uh, Galen, you got to interview both of these guys, Bob Williams and Dan Harriman. Um, one of the things that really struck me from Dan is um, the role – he didn't say this, but for me, the role of storytelling in – importance of teaching the next generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what did you think of these interviews? How, how was it to, what are the themes that popped into your head as you listened? Yeah. Well, I think also too, for, um, for the interview with, with Bob Williams at the top, I think just one of the things I wanted to mention about that, um, that I've been hearing all of the time is this value of property. Um, and he, I think that was something that he talked about that really hits home for a lot of people in coastal towns. Um, 
the idea that we might be getting priced out. Families might be getting priced out of land that they've had for hundreds of years um, and the reality of that. Uh, and I, I really – both of these – I mean it's so amazing, like the, the, the contrast of these two interviewees too. I mean Bob and Diane are sort of this like, you know, very um, just – kind of calm and, and quiet storytellers and answered questions. And Dan, I didn't ask Dan anything, really. <laughs> he just went for it. Um, and he's very emphatic, obviously. Like, his his tone is just amazing. Um, and, yeah, I think the idea of that so one of the reasons that we do these interviews, I know for you this is true, I think, um, is, you know, to try and get some of that knowledge that people want to pass down and to um, the inherited knowledge if we can capture it in this format and then pass it down that way. Um, it's a great way to do it. But I do um, – yeah, I, I do think that there's a lot to the idea of learning from the generation before you and learning what not what doesn't work. You know, we also need to take those lessons we try to at least. Um, yeah, and I, I I, also want to mention we could hear Pat Shepard laughing in there. He's very uh, influential on getting Dan Harriman into the studio. He really pushed Dan to come in and share his story, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, part of this work, can a lot of it can be uh, aided in just having someone who is a confidant and knows this person well and saying, hey, look, you should go share your story. You have something to say. Because um, I think people sometimes don't think that they have a story to share. Um, and they do. You probably know someone who's a great storyteller. <laughs> yeah. Bring them on over. <laughs> yeah. And Pat Shepard is with the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries in yes. Stonington. So he's a great link to a lot of fishermen up and down the coast. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to WERU Community Radio, 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor and WERU.org. I just wanted to let folks know that we're not going to take calls this show because uh, we have too many stories to share with you all. So um, hold off on the calls this particular go around. Um, and uh, in the studio with me today, I have Galen Koch, who is with the First Coast. She's a storyteller. Um, and she and I collected a bunch of stories at the most recent Maine Fisherman's Forum in Rockland, Maine. Um, so our next couple of clips, um, the forum, the Fisherman's Forum was attended by um, a bunch of our lawmakers and fisheries management folks. And in particular, um, we were really interested in capturing some of their thoughts about um, the status of the fishery, what uh, what they feel are important issues and what issues they're hearing about from fishermen. So these next couple of clips, the first one is going to be from Congresswoman Shelley Pingree, um, who, as many of you probably know, um, is from Vinyl Haven, um, and she's going to be North talking... Haven. North Haven. I'm so glad you corrected me. Thank you. She's from North Haven. Sorry, Shelley. Um, and so she'll share with us what she loves about the forum and her concerns for the future of the fishery and um, also uh, what she values in coastal communities. And then we'll segue to a really short clip from Senator Angus King, um, who will be reflecting on the concerns that he is hearing from fishermen. So sort of his perspective on what he's hearing. So with that, we can go ahead and hear Congresswoman Shelley Pingree from North Haven. Shelley, what brings you to the forum? 
Uh, well, I'm also representative um, for the 1st Congressional District, so I work on a lot of fisheries policy issues. And um, I like to come talk to the fishermen that are here. Um, we usually try to meet with NOAA or any federal officials who are coming through. And, um, you know, there's a lot on everyone's plates right now, so it's a good chance to catch a lot of people in one place. Plus, it's kind of fun. Yeah. What are some of the questions that you ask folks when you come to something like this? Well, usually... Um, you know, we with the fishermen that you encounter, I mean, most of the fishermen tend to be lobster fishermen. You ask them, you know, what's worrying them? How do their how did their season go? What are they seeing that's unusual? To tell you the truth, you hardly ever meet a lobster fisherman that you have to ask him a question. Um, they are wonderfully outspoken and usually have something on their mind. And usually if I'm just walking through the hallways, um, you know, I get stopped every few seconds. Somebody saying you know, something they want to talk about or just saying hello. I mean, I have been coming to the Fisherman's Forum for a long time. And uh, many of these people are many of the people who come, you know, are my friends and neighbors or I haven't seen them for a few years or we catch up or whatever. So it's just a good place to be. And what for you, I mean, as a Maine resident and a coastal Maine resident, an island resident, what are the concerns that you feel personally uh, well, I live, um, you know, I live in Penobscot Bay. That's a heart of lobster fishing territory, really, and maybe in the world. Um, and the communities all around the bay, the island communities, um, for many of them, their, their livelihood is dependent on lobster fishing, the community um, sense of well-being, you know, the culture, everything. And so, uh, you know, there's there's unavoidably going to be changes because of climate change. The Gulf of Maine is warming at a rate, you know, faster than anywhere else in the world. And we have some unique circumstances here. Um, and and it's something we've never encountered before. So I'm really worried about the future of the fisheries. I'm worried about um, how we're going to deal with it. Are there things that we can do? Um, and of course, I'm on the, you know, federal side. So I spent a lot of time in Washington trying to fight to get people to pay more attention to climate change and some of the challenges that we're facing and i i see it through the lens of the impact it could have in my home community or the people that you know make make a living fishing in maine yeah yeah and i think about like what other kind of institutions need to be in place for year-round communities to thrive if you have any thoughts on just oh, what yeah. makes those communities <clears throat> stronger than Well, a lot of people, you know, so if you were here in 1900, there would have been 300 year-round communities, and now it's down to about 14. And one of the last communities to kind of shut down was Creehaven off of Matinicus. And people will often say, and I don't even know how much is myth and how much is truth, but, you know, when the store closed... Um, it made it much harder, even if you have a tiny little store that just opens up once in a while, or when the church closed or when the school closed, you know, there are certain things that are kind of essential in a community. And um, I would say, you know, having a store, having a church, having a a school, having a post office, um, we have a gas pump, you know, I mean, they're just sort of certain things. And then after that, you're kind of adding on but you know each one of them plays a role young families generally won't live on an island if if their kids can't go to school and in in our community we have the smallest k-12 school in the state so 
That means we have a basketball team. That means we have a Christmas concert. Um, and we're not even really that religious of a community in terms of, you know, like some communities. But, you know, you have a church where you can go and you're all together when somebody gets married or when there's a funeral. And you've got a minister in town who makes sure that, you know, people are struggling, you know, but might not ask for help. Get that help. Um, and you got to have a store because, you know, every time you run out of milk, you don't want to take a boat to the mainland. So, um so there's some certain essential elements, and I think um, people in island communities, they really pay attention to that stuff in a way you wouldn't. You take all that stuff for granted. I mean, we don't have restaurants open in the winter, and, and um, you know, people spend much more time having dinner with each other or figure out other ways to get together. We have a community center that puts on events, so, you know, seniors get out every, you know, a couple of weeks to have coffee at 9 a.m. You know, the church puts on donut events once in a while just so people get together and see each other. And you wouldn't make that effort in another place. You'd just go to Dunkin' Donuts, get your coffee, and go back to work. What do you hope to see in the next decade along Maine's coast? I mean, what are your hopes for the future or fears for the future along the coast? Well, I mean, there are a lot of criteria to keeping the coast... um, you know, lively and and healthy communities. Um, you know, in island communities, we worry about making sure enough young people want to live there or can afford the housing there. Um, you know, we worry about um, sea level rising and what that could do to, you know, certain places along the coast where um, it could change the makeup of the coast. Um, I work in legislation around things like working waterfronts to make sure that communities, even though as they get attractive and developed, Um, You know, people want to move in and have their summer home there, but we want to make sure that fishermen can always have access. But we we will feel the impact of um, climate change, I think, more strongly than inland Maine or other places. And, you know, we're really going to depend on our country as a whole tackling these tough issues because we could be I mean all coastal communities could be the ones that feel it first um, from, you know, flooding to loss of fisheries and uh, it could really have a bad impact. Um, the reverse of that is, you know, we continue to have healthy communities and they're wonderful places to live and raise your kids. And as a lot more people are choosing to move out of a city, um, want to come to places like Maine, can live anywhere because they have, you know, Internet access and they can do their jobs remotely. Um, you know, these are ideal places to, to live, to raise your kids, to, to feel safe and to feel part of, um, you know, something bigger than yourself. That was Congresswoman Shelley Pingree at the 2018 Maine Fishermen's Forum, sharing some thoughts about island and working waterfront communities. Next, Galen Koch talks with Senator Angus King about the issues he is hearing are on the minds of Maine fishermen. You know, coming to something like this, I'm sure you're talking to a lot of people here. What are some of the concerns that you hear about um, regarding coastal living and the fishing industry? Well, uh... I've talked about uh, there's a there's a big issue on the horizon where uh, the Canadians have negotiated a uh, uh, a trade deal with the Europeans that's lowered the tariff on live lobsters from eight percent to zero and on processed or frozen lobsters uh, uh, from sixteen percent to zero. So it's put the Canadians in a very strong competitive position with our industry, and that's a real problem. And so the question is, how do we do something about that? Uh, So that's an issue that we were talking about. Today, several people have brought up what's called the gray zone, which is an area near the border, uh, down east, uh, near the Canadian border, where it's still not fully resolved as to whether it's Canadian water or U.S. water, and there's friction in there between the fishermen and, and what the jurisdiction is. 
Uh, one fellow wanted to talk about health insurance. Another wanted to talk about taxes. Um, they talked about the steel tariff and how that might affect the price of a lobster trap that was imposed yesterday. Um, so a great variety. Uh, met some high school students that are here uh, that are concerned about uh, the issues of, of whales and their interaction with the fishing community. Um, so great cross-section. I was delighted to see a fairly large number of young people here. Yeah, it's great. The the Skippers program that's is a, really... That's a great program. Great. It's, it's, it's literally heartwarming. It's a great program. That was Senator Angus King, and right before him, we had Congresswoman Shelley Pingree, and both were being interviewed by Galen Koch at the recent Maine Fishermen's Forum. Um, and I have Galen Koch in the studio with me here today. Um, so that the, hearing those two folks, Galen, was a really different perspective. We started by hearing a couple fishermen kind of sharing some of their concerns and then um, hearing some elected officials talking from their perspective. Um, what do you make of that? How do, how do you hear those differently? Well, it's funny because um, maybe it's just the nature of being at the forum, but I was surprised maybe in the way that the concerns were similar. It was reflected in both uh, Pingree and King, you know, were reflecting back what they had been hearing, which was what we were hearing in the Airstream too. So I think that was nice to feel like there is a continuity there between um, what we were experiencing just interviewing people all day and what when asked what the concerns were that they were hearing on the ground, those really were reflected in um, the experiences we had with people, which I think is just a great, uh, it's good to feel like your elected officials are listening with keen ears. Um, and yeah, and I think, you know, thinking about some of those, I'm some of those uh, kind of components that Pingree was talking about, about um, small town sustainability in a small town and how to make a small town thrive and be enticing for young people to move to, um, I think is something that continues to be uh, a really pertinent issue on the coast right now and something that um, a lot of folks are thinking about, it seems. Um, And it's all related, you know, when you start to think about her her concerns for the fisheries and and her concerns that um, they both mentioned climate change I believe um, I don't know if King did in this clip that we selected but he did in his interview and um, thinking about some of the impacts that could happen over the next couple of years and also you know what these economies look like for young people who would be moving to them and what the job market looks like and and how. Um, yeah, I'm. I, I've been kind of very curious in my interviews in Stonington and Lubeck at at looking at some of those exact issues that Pingree and King brought up about what, like, where the um, how we keep and sustain these small towns in light of all, all the changes that could be happening in in the, in the next decade. Um, and I'm I'm curious for you, Natalie, if in your work. Talking about the gray zone, um, King mentioned that, and I don't. I know about it, but I'm not. I'm not completely versed, and I know maybe in Lubeck it will be something that comes up. 
I'm sure it is something that will come up for you in Lubeck. Um, and it actually, interestingly enough, comes up in the next clip that we're going to air um, from some students uh, in at Jonesport Beals Island High School. Um, they mention it as well because one of them who we interviewed spends time fishing or, or hopes to spend time fishing in the gray zone. So the gray zone is a section of water on the edge of the border with Canada. Um, and so we'll let the Skipper students talk a little bit more about that. Um, so... So so I think in terms of the congresswoman and the senator, um, were there any surprises for you or did you feel like they were really reflecting what you were hearing in other interviews as well? Um, there weren't – well, there weren't any surprises based on what I sort of expected from those interviews I get, with them. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Um, yeah. They were – they sort of reinforced what we were hearing from fishermen directly. Yeah. It was interesting. Um, and – the themes that followed from one interview to the next. So, um, you know, in the 35 or so interviews that we did, we had three or four of us who were doing the interviews um, and there were key themes that kept coming through in all of them um, or in many, many of them. And I think that um, Senator Angus King, especially um, in his clip, really kind of summarized those in a, in quickly. They really were the key ones. Interestingly, um, everyone talked about the future and concerns of the future and hope for the next generation, um, which is why we wanted our third clip to be the voice of the next generation of fishermen. Um, and so our next clip is um, going to be an interview that I conducted at the 2018 Maine Fishermen's Forum with two young fishermen who are students at Jonesport Beals Island High School. And my understanding is that there is a group of Jonesport Beals Island High School students right now listening to the show. So just a shout out to you guys. Um, great to have interviewed some of you um, and to have met a bunch of you at the forum. So Tyler Childers and Anson Kelly are both enrolled in the Eastern Maine Skippers program, which teaches students from eight Eastern Maine high schools how to participate in fisheries management and run successful and adaptable businesses. Um, so the Eastern Maine Skippers students explore challenges within the fishing industry and they propose solutions. Um, and... Uh, there was a presentation at the Maine Fishermen's Forum where all representatives of all eight of the schools involved in the Skippers program shared their work. Um, and as Senator King noted, it was really pretty impressive to hear um, to not only that these students were present, but that they were really proposing how do we address some of these issues in the future. So in particular, Tyler and Anson are looking into bait issues. And these two young men, as fishermen themselves, have a lot of firsthand knowledge about bait. Um, and they also will talk in their clip um, about their love of fishing and changes that they're seeing in the industry because these guys, they might only be in high school, but they've got a lot of time on the water and their experiences bring them uh, a lot of knowledge and they've made a lot of observations over the years that I think are really valuable. So um, our next clip is going to be Tyler um, Anson and I mean Tyler Childers and Anson Killy from um, the Jonesport Beals Island High School. Anson, are you a fisherman? Yeah, uh, I'm a three-generation fisherman. Great. Tell me a little bit about your fishing story. So when did you start? Uh, I started as a little boy. I went fishing with my father quite a bit. Uh, we've we've enjoyed our time together on the lobster boat. It's where most of our bonds have come from. How about you? Uh, yeah, I'm a fisherman too. Uh, I started out with my dad and worked as a steerman for my uncle offshore. And I'd go with him every day when he went out and then 
eventually I just got my own license, got my own boat, started hauling my own gear. So you have your own license? Yep. And um, is that a student license? Yes. How long have you had it? Oh, let's see, about eight years. Great. How about you? Do you have a... I've got a student license uh, and have my own boat, 28-footer, uh, 50 traps. I'm so impressed that you guys have, you basically have your own businesses already. Yeah. 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 What do you love about it, Hanson? Uh, no, I just enjoy being on the water. Being on the water is, it's something else. Uh, being able to wake up in the morning, seeing the sunrise, and it's just a beautiful place to be. Nice. Nice. Um, and, uh, what about you? What do you love about it, Tyler? I just love getting up, starting up the boat, taking off the morning. And when you get down in the reach where we live, just give it all you got so you can get out the bay, get your gear hold, picking lobsters out of the traps, and coming home making money. That's great. 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 So what are you guys doing this year with the skippers? Uh, we're working with bait prices and quality and availability this year because past two, three years, bait quality has not been good. We've been getting little chunked up pieces and prices have been way too high for what they cost because of a shortage and um you have personal experience with bait challenges so what on your boat what do you tell us about bait how do you use bait where do you get it what do you use i get it at my local co-op and every time you put it in the pocket and you can come out like two days later and haul none of it will be there it just goes in little chunks just doesn't stay on the pockets long enough. Oh, it falls out. Now, or it's getting eaten. It's getting eaten and won't stay on long enough. So you're looking for a way to make it last longer. Yeah. How about you? What's your bait experience? Uh, your boat? Same thing. Uh, I go through three, four cans a day. And I get it from uh, my local bait dealer where I sell my lobsters. Uh, I've noticed that quality and prices don't match out. The price is way too high for the quality. Just like Tyler said, getting chunked up, ground up pieces, and not not staying on the pockets as well as a whole herring would. And you said that you use two or three cans? Uh, three or four. Three or four, and what's a can? A uh, five-gallon bucket. Okay. Okay. So what are you trying to, to do with new new bait options? Uh, we'd, uh, we'd like to see a good quality, lower price, and... Uh, little better availability uh maybe being able to fish here and closer to where we're from instead of needing to get it shipped from portland Mm -hmm. so right now you get your herring from your local bait dealer who gets it from portland yeah yeah same as you yeah and the bait dealer also go massachusetts and gloucester bring it up next day and sell it off and they just don't like he said, quality and prices aren't matching up. Yeah. And so in your skippers program, there's a group of you working on this topic? Yes. Yeah. So so are you talking with dealers? What are you doing? Yeah. We uh, contacted a local dealer, uh, Ben Durkee, who owns Durkee Lobster Bait of Jonesport. And we pretty much got the rundown on how he gets the bait, how much he pays for the bait, and how much he charges when the bait gets off of his truck and someone else's hands and all that. Cool. And then what happens? Uh, it's a very long process. Like you said, they go to the boat, they get it pumped off the boat into the truck, and 
then they bring it home, they salt it into Xactix, and uh, after that, when they need it, they take it, dump it out, and dish it out into buckets, and then it comes to us. Okay. What's an Xactix? Uh, um, uh, it's a big uh, plastic bin uh, that holds uh, quite a bit of bait. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for the project, what it, what do you hope to achieve by the end of the year? Uh, some uh, one group's working on uh, alternative bait idea they'd like to see a good alternative bait come out that works with the heron uh works the same way the heron does or just see a good quality come out even if the price stayed stayed the same see a good quality of the bait come out for me good quality is good fishing okay do you think that like if you picture yourself as the fisherman that you want to be in 15 20 years do you want to where do you want to be fishing I want to be fishing offshore down towards the gray zone, Canadian border, and work my way back into the bay as I get older. Okay. Okay. Tell You seem really clear about that. Tell me more about that. How did you come to that? Oh, it was about two or three years ago when my mother asked me, she goes, what do you want to do when you grow up? I said, yeah, I just want to lobster fish. And then ever since then, I've been thinking about, man, I can work my way up, get a big boat someday, hopefully get my full license, then come out to the canadian border where my uncle fished and worked my way back in because most older people in uh the jonesport area they don't really fish offshore anymore they fish down in the bay and what makes someone decide to fish offshore or in the bay offshore you got a better chance to catch more lobsters where it's wide open than in the bay where it's just closed in okay but offshore might be a little bit more intense yeah you got a lot more rough uh rough weather and Big seas. Big seas, a lot of big seas. Okay. So you want to get some time under your belt. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting about the gray zone? I've just grown up with my uncle and my dad fishing, and they've always fished out there, and I've kind of liked it out there. Um, what's What are some of your favorite memories of being on the water with your family? Just going out with my father and fishing with him and getting that closer bond of working with him. That's great. How about you? Uh, when I was a kid, uh, me and my cousin would take little buoys that were wrapped up in a rope, and we'd put them out over the side. We'd pretend like we were having a boat race with buoys offshore. That was fun. I can remember that. And putting the food in the hot tank and just let it sit there, warm up, and then drive the boat every once in a while, and then go up into the cabin and take paper towel rolls that were down there, pile them up like a pillow and take a nap and then sit right on the uh i can't think of what it's called like a dashboard kind of right by the windows sit up there most of the yep the bulkhead the bulkhead yep sit on top of the bulkhead and just look at the ocean and all that spend time with my dad that was fun that sounds like great memories oh yeah no wonder you guys want to keep doing it yeah. Um, in your time fishing, because you both have now been fishing for... Quite a while. Quite a while. If you started... At, how old were you when you started? I was uh, eight and nine. And you were around there. eight or nine. How about you, Anson? started right from when I was old enough to hop on the boat. And, uh, three or four. 
So you guys have been out there. How, can I ask you how old you are? How old are you, Anson? 14. 14. And Tyler? 16. 16. So you've spent a lot of time on the water already. Have you noticed in your time on the water things that might be changing, whether it's about the industry or different things that you're seeing? People are getting bigger boats now than what they have been before. You see these people coming out with big 50-foot boats and hauling more traps. Started from a little outboard with a small, small engine. Now that just keeps getting bigger and better, I guess. Yeah. What What do you think about the future of the fishery? In some ways, I think that it might. I hopefully, hopefully, it will stay the way it is. But also, in the back of your mind, you're also a little nervous because more people are getting into it. And you know the lobsters can only be populated the way they are for so long. Pretty much what he said. Yeah. What do you guys love about living in the Jonesport Beals area? Everyone's friendly to you. There's not much drama. Everyone knows like what who you are and they'll talk to you even if you don't know them and they know you. Just a small community that... One big family. Yeah, it's one big family. So that was uh, Tyler Childers and Anson Kelly from Jonesport Beals. Um, They are part of the Eastern Maine Skippers program down there. And uh, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio. And today our show is um, about sharing some audio uh, interviews with you of the recent Maine Fishermen's Forum. So we got the chance to interview Tyler and Anson at the Fishermen's Forum just a couple weeks ago. Um, So I also have in the studio with me Galen Koch of the First Coast, who was involved in collecting a lot of these interviews. Um, And Galen, what are some of the themes that you get out of that one? Oh, um, I mean, it's just so great to, I I love the way that both of them talked about sort of family legacy and um, the bonds that they have with their fathers on the boat and just this, you know, it's it's the first interview we've shared that feels a little bit, um, just has that, it's really personal. They were very giving with you of of their personal lives and I love that and and their relationship to the water and I also um you know a lot of what they said about bait I mean it's really this is a big issue Bob Williams was talking about it too and I think it's just really great to hear high schoolers talking about it on the coast and thinking about solutions you know and not sitting back and saying well this is just the way it is now um, and it's it's really cool to think that they're that you know the the younger generation right now is isn't looking at the problems and saying maybe we just have to wait it out and see what happens and saying wait I want this to survive so how do I help to make changes or make improvements or whatever you need to do I think that that was a really cool theme with them. Yeah, yeah, I got that too. Um, really, really engaged youth in the work that they're doing. Um, and uh, throughout all these interviews, um, another a theme that really struck home for me is just the changes in the fisheries. And I think that Tyler and Anson hit on several, 
you know, bigger boats um, and also uh, more and more fishermen going offshore. That was a big theme that we heard too, which would have been different, say, 10, 15 years ago if we had done this project then um, at the Fishermen's Forum. So, uh, you know, just sort of a change in how people fish. Um, did you hear much of that in the interviews you conducted? Yeah. Oh, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and and also what they said that I think is really interesting about, yeah, aging and coming inshore. Um which I actually didn't expect because the people that I know down south, I live in Portland now, so a lot of the fishermen I know down south well, basically only fish offshore. I mean, they're not. Um, but but And I thought that was a recent trend, you know, not knowing, and then talking to Bob Williams, and he used to fish out, and now he's come in because he's, he's aged and doesn't want to go out on the high seas anymore. Um, but, yeah, you hear a lot about that in Stonington, you know. There's still a lot of inshore <laughs> right now, but um, definitely down south. And, yeah, the other themes, I mean, they said it too, this idea, you know, and, and Pingree touched on it, um, the feeling of family in these communities and um, the feeling of you know everyone. I love n- not a lot of drama. Maybe there is a <laughs> whatever the case, um, you know, that comes – Knowing everyone comes with both things, but I think um, a lot of people talked about their communities and and having a, a real tie to the place that they're from, which I think. And, you know, Angus King, I we didn't include it in here, but said something about coming to the forum and it feels like when you go enough to something like that, you feel like you know everyone in Maine. You start to be like, you know, it's one big, it's like... Uh, small town with one big road or something like that, he said, which I just loved because it does, it starts to feel, yeah, like, yeah, you know, a lot, a lot of people know each other all over, all over the coast, all over the state. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so capturing stories is really what you're about for, for a while now. Um, why do you think that this work is important? Oh, I think this work is important. Um, I think it's just important exactly that last interview that we heard is really the what makes me feel um, so motivated to do it. I think having pe- folks being able to think about how they – to really process in an interview what's important and what, what matters. I mean that's really my major goal with any of this is just to have conversations that spark that kind of um, kind of thought. What does matter to you? That's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, if folks wanted to connect with you um, and maybe be part of the First Coast Project somehow or just hear more of the stories that you've produced, uh, how do they get in touch with you? Um, you can email me, uh, galen at thefirstcoast.org, also www.thefirstcoast.org. There's a contact page on there. Great. Yeah. Great. Um, so we've come to the end of our coastal conversation today about the Voices of the Maine Fishermen's Forum Project and the First Coast. Um, we are especially thankful to all the folks at the Maine Fishermen's Forum who stepped into the Airstream to be interviewed, including Tyler Childers, Anson Kelly, Bob Williams, Dan Harriman, Congressman Shelley Pingree, and Senator King, and many, many others that we will air on future shows. Um, thanks so much to Galen Koch of the First Coast. Clearly could not have done this show without you. Thank you, Galen. 
Um, and we also wanted to thank College of the Atlantic, the Island Institute, and the Eastern Maine Skippers Program, who have all supported this project in various ways. Um, Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Next month, our show will take a deep look at Sears Island, the years of controversy around its use, its protection, and what's up on the island today. Um, Our show's theme music is A Following Sea, and it was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our show, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Front Street Shipyard. 